You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. My guest today is Alyssa Walker, who is the urbanism editor for Curbed. She lives in Los Angeles uh, with her husband and two kids. She is a great writer, has kick-ass fashion sense, and is kind of one of my urban heroes. Hopefully, that's not too weird for me to say. Alyssa Walker, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. That is so nice of you to say. Thank you. So you are the urbanism editor for Curbed, and I know that you've previously written on urban issues for several other publications like Gizmodo and Fast Company and others. What got you into this field initially? I think it was for me just where I lived in Los Angeles at the time. I had been writing about design and architecture and kind of all the the components that come together to build a great city, but never really knew that much about urbanism maybe as a, a field. When I moved to Los Angeles, you know, of course I had a, you know, a car because you're supposed to have a car. It's kind of like they hand them out when you, you know, get your apartment set up here and everything. I just didn't even think twice about it. But about uh, several years after I had lived here, you know, I lived in a very densely populated part of Hollywood and kind of started to realize that I didn't need to drive my car and that I should maybe walk some more places, ride our great transit system, started to notice things about the buildings and how the city and neighborhood was being shaped around me and going through quite a few remarkable changes. So I just wanted to write about those changes. And that ended up being this new field to me, I guess. I had always known about writing about transportation and architecture and design, but putting all the pieces together, I think, to be able to um, cover this field pretty well. So what were the changes that you were seeing at that time? You know, when I first started maybe writing a little bit more about these topics, this was like 2008, 2009, when the city was really starting to make an investment in its transit system. We passed something called Measure R, which is we just recently passed something called Measure M, which is this, you know, taxing ourselves for better transit, building out our, our rail system, our bus system. That was something that I think made the entire city aware that we needed to make these changes to, to our urban environment. And then also, you know, LA is getting a little bit more dense. We're uh, living in closer proximity to each other. We're we're appreciating more public space investment. So it's it's kind of this idea that we're all getting out of our cars and out of our you know homes with our yards and um, changing the way that we live. I have this distinct memory of reading one of your articles probably a few years ago. I think it was republished on Jalopnik, and it was about some urban related topic on walkability or something along those lines. But I remember distinctly that the first comment on the article was something like, these New Yorkers, they just want everyone to walk and take public transit. <laughs> and don't they know the rest of the country isn't like that? This author is just living in a bubble. And then you responded, well, actually, I don't live in New York. I'm in LA. <laughs> That's the best compliment, right? If somebody assumes you live in New York with the way that you write about walkability, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> 
But what is it like being in this field, but in LA, you know, as you said earlier, it's a city that a lot of people see as being really car centric and spread out and not very conducive to a more urban lifestyle. Obviously, it's a city, it's an urban environment. But in terms of walking and biking, things like that, mixed use developments, that's not people's perception of LA, but you've kind of found your way to that. Well, I think like the hardest thing is that like getting over people's perception, because like the first thing that you say when you talk about these things, and then you say like you live in LA is there, there's that moment of disbelief where you have to kind of convince somebody that it's actually true, and you're not writing fiction or whatever. <laughs> but I think it's it's gotten a lot easier over the last few years. I think a lot of those stereotypes, we're, we're working so hard to just hammer away at those. <laughs> Everybody who does, you know, who is really walking the walk here is working really hard. And I think things like social media do kind of help because I'm able to share shots of myself and my kids taking the bus and, and, you know, riding around on my bike with, you know, my daughter on the back. And I think that really helps to illustrate that it's, it's real, it's happening. And a lot of people are doing it. It's not just me. It's not a lot of people who even have a choice about doing it in a city like LA. So I think maybe the, the stories that are being told are not, are just limited to the fact that I have a platform that I can write on a website, but also, you know, millions of people, regular people in the city are sharing, you know, the good and the bad parts of getting around in a city that's that's just really starting to support them in their decision to not have a car and to ride transit and, and walk or bike. What was it like for you deciding to be car free and transitioning to that? A lot of people, like you said, wouldn't believe that was possible. But how did you make it work? And why? Yeah, for me, it was literally, like I said before, I, I lived in this neighborhood right by the Hollywood Bowl in Hollywood. And, and if you've come to Hollywood recently, it's become, you know, like Times Square with a lot more cars. <laughs> and so a lot of people are coming there and coming there at certain times for certain events. So streets are often closed, which is that part's good. And, you know, to allow for premieres and things like that to happen. The Hollywood Bowl has this very aggressive concert schedule in the summer. So there were times when I literally could not leave my driveway because... I wouldn't have gotten more than like, you know, 10 feet <laughs> before I needed to go somewhere. So it was for me, you know, which I think is good. For me, it was it was an opportunity just to almost play a game to be like, okay, well, can't take my car. Like, how far can I get to my destination on a bike? Or does the train line go where I need to go? And it was almost like a game at first, because I didn't, you know, you kind of use your smartphone. And when I very first started, it was before smartphones, you had to use your computer to do trip planning, and then like kind of write it down <laughs> and take it with you. But then, you know, you use your phone and you have all these great trip planners now where it shows you different options of how you can get around and how long it will take. And once I started to, you start to realize the little hacks of your city and, you know, anybody who's like a native transit writer, you know, the, it's funny for me to explain these things that kind of laugh if they've, you know, just always just walked down to the the New York City subway and jumped on. But for someone in LA, you really do have to learn the tricks and talk to other people and, and understand the, these little rhythms that you have to get into. So for me, I, I felt like it was kind of a game. Are you seeing more people make that choice or at least, you know, choose to walk or bike or use transit more than just purely driving? Well, I guess the the numbers would tell you that there was a swell of more people doing it and now, you know, ridership is down. 
bus ridership. We still have some rail lines that have continued to outperform. I, I'm not sure that's telling the whole story because I do know a lot of people that have really gone all in on biking. The city has tried to support those choices with some investments, um, but we still have a long way to go in our infrastructure. So there's people who are have tried biking maybe and are too scared to continue biking because they don't feel safe. And that's that's a real concern. I do see a lot of people who are reducing their cars, you know, from like two cars to one car, you know, just like households where it's just even two people who don't even have kids or who are leaving their cars at home for longer periods of time and trying to commute on rail, using rideshare for maybe part of their trip. So maybe like taking the bus out and then like calling a lift or something to come home. So I'm seeing people that are aware of the options now and maybe trying them out, whether or not they use them consistently or whether or not the city provides the infrastructure. That's, that's a bigger challenge sometimes. So what are some of the things that you're most excited about or proud of that are happening in, in LA right now in terms of urban planning and transportation? It's a great testament to our city that we've been able to pass uh, a bunch of very huge ballot measures in the last few years that have really shown that the city wants better transit, wants more affordable housing and better housing options for our residents. I'm talking about things like Measure M, which I referenced before. We had something else called Measure H and Measure HHH um, and Measure JJJ. Also uh, Measure A, which is for more parkland that we uh, are getting more funds to go to open space projects and playgrounds, things like that. But these are showing that the LA agrees with the changes that are slowly being made that I talked about before. Like we're, we're caring more about our public spaces. We're caring more to, about our transit and our streets. It feels like it happens very slowly, I think sometimes, but um, these changes are happening and uh, we're going to start to see very small improvements from everything to like our sidewalks, to bike lanes, to like these big, massive, you know, rail infrastructure projects that are going to be implemented over the next decades, I guess. This is going to last a really long time, at least until the Olympics. When we can stop. It's going to be fast track for the Olympics in 2020. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Is there a lot of buzz around the city right now about that? Or is it too early to be thinking that far ahead? I think there's a lot of buzz. I think there's people who are concerned that it might not be the best thing for our city. There's a lot of worry about um, displacement and how the city will handle, you know, what is going to be some very massive building projects that, that need to happen to just get the city ready, including these 28 transit projects that are going to kind of be fast tracked in preparation for for the Olympics. I'm feeling pretty optimistic. I think it's a good way for the city to prioritize not just, you know, how to make it ready for millions of visitors, but how to make a better city that serves the communities that live here better. You know, a lot of this stuff like the rail infrastructure and those improvements will, you know, be connecting very densely populated neighborhoods across the city like they once were when we had a great streetcar system, but in a more efficient way that's going to, um, you know, allow people to move around the city more efficiently all the time. So that's good. I think the other thing that the Olympics um, has shown in LA, you know, we're very famous for the past two times that we hosted the Olympics, uh, most recently in 1984, you know, we didn't build anything new. So we're not going to have, once again, we're not going to have these giant empty stadiums left on our landscape, like so many other uh, cities have ha have had happened to them in the years after the Olympics. So we're using the, all the resources we have all these structures we already have, we have such a great, you know, system already in place for bringing these games to the city. So we're just going to 
you know, throw some really brightly colored uh, <laughs> window dressings, I guess, on on the city and wayfinding graphics and things like that, just to get people to know where to go. And hopefully some really cool electric buses or something to fill in the transit gaps. And then uh, we'll be ready to welcome the world. And getting to keep those things afterwards. That's a really good opportunity, hopefully. I think it'll be good. I think it. I think it'll be good for the city, and I hope that I know that there's a, a good team in place that wants to deploy it, and their heart's in the right place. So hopefully, this will it'll be good for us. So switching gears a little bit, you are a parent with two kids, one of whom is pretty new to the world. So congratulations on that. Thank you. I wanted to ask about your experiences living in a city with both kids. Did you live in LA when you had your daughter and? And if you did, how did your routine change when you had her? I mean, I'm sure everything changed, but in terms of, <laughs> you know, where you lived and how you traveled, um, what was it like doing those things with a new baby in tow? Yeah, I mean, my daughter's three now and uh, she is uh, Metro Los Angeles's biggest fan. She is a huge bus and train rider. Also loves riding on the back of my bike. But if you would ask her, she prefers taking the bus or the train. Actually, the bus. I think the bus and the train, it goes back and forth. Right now, she's in the buses, you know, then it goes back to the train. So right now, you know, we'll see. She's very interested in, uh, we have something downtown called Angel's Flight, which is a hundred year old funicular that travels up one of our biggest hills in downtown. They just revitalized it and brought it you know back to life and that's probably her favorite transit experience currently in in the city (laughs) just literally riding it up and down up and down is that because the people watching or just the excitement of like you know, yeah, it's like, why do kids love transit so much? And then you grow out of it, maybe when you get older, and you put yourself in a car, and you forget about that joy and wonderment. I mean, I think for her, it is, you know, meeting people and talking to people. She is really into, uh, you know, chatting up strangers. And I have to think that that's from riding on public transit, you know, we meet different people every time we go on the bus, sometimes we see the same people too, which is pretty exciting for her. But you know, the whole experience of, walking to the bus stop, having our little routines, looking what's changed since the last time we were there, um, certain plants and pets, you know, she, she has her own her little way of navigating the world. And, you know, for me, it was very natural to take my very young baby on the bus, you know, weeks, <laughs> days and weeks after they were born. A lot of people I think are, are still, it's a little intimidating or worrisome to take their kids on transit. They're worried about maybe the reliability or other people that they're not quite so sure about. But um, for me, it's been a super positive experience. I, I can't say we changed much about our schedule or, you know, the way that we go about our day because, you know, we all, we're big fans of transit and we like to ride the bus and the trains and, and ride our bikes and, now my daughter likes to use the trip planner as well and and look at the schedules and see how fast the bus is coming and which one we should take. So she's into the game as well, I guess. <laughs> Do you find that people are generally like helpful and friendly? Like I remember I lived in New York for a year. It would just like warm my heart when I saw, you know, a parent trying to walk down the steps of the subway with the stroller and like immediately someone would just come up and like help you carry the stroller down the stairs. Like every time. And that's just like a beautiful moment of humanity. But did that, did that happen <laughs> regularly for you? I think that ha- it does happen more when you have kids, people are very nice and want to help you. I do think that like traveling without a stroller is in, in general, like a better idea <laughs> if you can carry 
children because it's always like you do have to, strollers are, man, what a pain in the seat. The elevators never work, I feel like. <laughs> so you're always trying to rely on that. But yeah, I think it's not only that people are, you know, just more inclined to help you because they know you're a mom. And But I, I do think they're, they're interested in, you know, that kind of idea that a kid would be on transit and be riding transit and then a parent would take the time to walk them through this experience that might take longer than being in a car. You know, for me, that's time that I have with my kid. If we're in a car, I feel like I can't see them. I can't talk to them. We can't be looking out the window at the same things. And if we're on transit, we're we're experiencing it together. And, you know, 10 more minutes to wait for a bus, for example, I know a lot of people don't have that kind of time you know, we have schedules, we have places we need to be. But for me, that 10 minutes is totally worth it if I get to be with my kid. Have you found your neighborhood in general to be a supportive place for parents? Like, is there good resources and community parks, schools, all that? Like, were you able to find that close by? We're very lucky that uh, the preschool that we attend is, you know, within a mile of our house, we can walk there or in my daughter's uh, ideal world, we ride the bus three stops <laughs> just to get there, even though you could walk there <laughs> in probably the same amount of time, maybe even faster. There's a lot of uh, great parks and, and our, our school, of course, is, is local. And I will say that we've met a lot of people in our neighborhood because we were walking. You know, we walked to school and we, you know, meet people a few houses down. We never would have talked to them if we were driving by in our car. So we're very lucky that we have, you know, fairly, fairly nicely maintained uh, sidewalks and good connections to transit and can walk to, you know, coffee shops and a few other things that are around our house. So it's a good way to, you know, teach your kids about uh, the importance of, you know, why your neighborhood matters and, and being friendly and connected to where you live. So now that you just had your second child, is there anything that you're doing differently based on lessons you learned the first time around? <laughs> well, everything just happens a little bit slower when you have a second kid. So let's just say we're taking those like really explorative walks to the bus stop. They just take a little bit longer now and a little bit longer to get out the door. I mean, I was very comfortable taking him on transit right away. So I never had, you know, with, with my, my daughter, with my first child, I was just a little bit I had questions about like where we should sit and how I should hold her and things like that. So now I feel pretty confident just knowing that part of the bus that's safe and it's okay to have your baby carrier on and everything like that. So I felt, I feel very confident. Um, I'll probably have him on the bike a little bit earlier than I did have, have my daughter on the bike. He'll be able to um, enjoy that part. Although I have to figure out how to take two kids around on a bike. So maybe we'll do one kid per bike now or, or get a, like a bike trailer or something like that. <laughs> you have to consider all these things. But I will say the other thing that I've noticed just having, having two kids is, you know, the city is fairly friendly to having one. It's not super friendly to having two or more, you know, so if you're going on a bus you know, trying to find room for your three kids. I just can't, I see other families, you know, and people maybe don't stand up right away or they're not as accommodating. It's just a, it's a bigger challenge to have more kids. And also things like, you know, electric car share that was been introduced to the city. I would love to use this, but how am I going to get car seats? You know, am I going to carry my own car seat to take to the, you know, the car share station? You know, there are things like ride hailing services that, 
cater to families that will come with a car seat and pick you up. We don't have a whole lot of those in LA, but there, there are options. But you kind of start to think at every part of your journey, you know, bike share. Yeah, I can jump on a bike share bike by myself, but there's no possible way I could do that with a kid and have helmets and things like that. So you have to kind of think about, yes, the city is great for, you know, an able-bodied 20-year-old person. But then as soon as you reach that next level, how well is the city addressing those needs? So what do you think in general makes a place good for raising a child? I'm sure, you know, plenty of people have different opinions on this. But in your experience, what makes like a family-friendly city? Well, for me, it's been things that we can do together that we all enjoy, which is not always, you know, uh, I mean, I love going to playgrounds, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I love going to parks and things like that. But for me, like some of the best moments for us are at a really awesome restaurant where we can enjoy great food, have like a beer, and they've taken the time to think about how families can sit together in interesting ways. We're outside, there might be even like a place that the kids can hang out or wander over to or check out that's like part of it, you know, like the quintessential, like a German beer garden, you go to these places in other cities, and they've thought about that kids are going to come with families, they want families to come and be able to, to see other parents and have this kind of adult time, but also, you know, allow the kids to be welcome and, and taken care of. So, you know, for us, it's these like multi use places that aren't really specifically planned for kids, like a playground, but it's say like the splash pad that we go to in downtown LA, you know, and you can sit at the coffee shop next to the splash pad and like, have that moment of, you know, adult interaction with people while your kid like runs crazy in this, you know, big fountain. So it's kind of not necessarily engineered for kids per se, but just for families and this inclusive nature. The thing I love about something like the splash pad is like, you know, grandparents and people of all ages and abilities are able to play with their kids. And sometimes that can't happen if you're in say a pool or a playground or one of the more specific you know, uses that have been designated for kids. So you really have to look at these like multi-generational spaces and how they're um, helping families to get out and enjoy their city. What about in terms of housing options? Does your neighborhood have good housing options for families of different sizes? And how important is that for a family-friendly city, especially like a really dense urban neighborhood? I know that's an issue that people face. Right. I mean, this missing middle idea, right? So, you know, it it applies to families and the sizes of, you know, these family networks, which are sometimes including, you know, the grandparent who is going to move back in with you and help you take care of your kids, which I'm seeing more and more happen. LA is becoming very expensive. We're hopefully trying to make up um, with some of the housing scarcity issues that we've been addressing over the last decade or so. But there are a few like hopeful things that the city is doing, something like the addition of ADUs or these granny, literally granny shacks being put in people's backyards. They've really loosened a lot of the regulations and permitting issues. And turns out people are building more of them because they just made it easier to do. So this could address a lot of those housing issues. You could have a caregiver, um, somebody who helps take care of your family to maybe live in the back. And then you would, you know, feel less stressed out about finding childcare, which is part of the reason that a lot of people can't afford nicer places to live. It's like your car. And you're, that what you have to spend on childcare in order to be a working parent in this city, which is, it's really, really difficult. So there's solutions like that, which I think 
the city is actually helping in addition to helping, you know, with the housing crisis. And as far as like this density question, I mean, yeah, the better place for anyone to be living is a place where you don't have to get in your car with your kids, where you can walk to school, where you can walk to do your daily errands without getting in a car and, you know, driving a few miles and having to pile everybody in and out of seatbelts and car seats and everything. So I do think that there is a great opportunity for a lot of these developments, like small lot developments, places that can add a little bit more density to make it easier on families, both with cost and just so we don't have to drive around and and cart our kids around. So I'm all for it. I, I'm not seeing as much of it I, as I would like, but I'm, I'm hoping that LA is, has made that a focus going forward. And I'm also seeing more and more people, you know, among our Strong Towns membership and, and plenty of other people deciding that they want to live in a city and be able to be downtown and walk and all these things, but can't afford a really big city. So they've found ways to locate that in other mid-sized cities that are more affordable. So I'm seeing that more as a trend and that's really promising to me. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're going to see, you know, millennials have already started to have families, but then there's, you know, the generation behind them. And a lot of these people have already been priced out of big cities. They're not even putting down their roots in the biggest cities. So they're going to be responsible for shaping the child friendliness of maybe some of these smaller cities and maybe making them a lot better places to live than the big cities. You are the urbanism editor for Curbed and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, did you say that that is a new position? Yes, it was. I think it was kind of created when I came on board. We have an architecture critic. And so it just made sense to have also like an an urbanism. I'm not necessarily a critic. I don't think you can really be an urbanism critic, but we have, you know, an architecture critic. And then I'm kind of the urbanism editor. So I help not only write stories, you know, from a national perspective about all these issues, but also, you know, working with our great city editors who are all over the country and how they can be really covering these stories. And um, they're doing such a great job. They don't need help from me. But, you know, just we're kind of helping everyone coordinate what we're covering and why. So what are the things that you want to focus on in this? I don't know how new it is for you, but like a fairly new position. What are the areas that you want to focus on in your urbanism editing? We did our first transportation theme week in September. It was actually right after I left for maternity leave. So I can't take um, a whole lot of credit for it, even though I helped to kind of get it set in place. And then, you know, it blossomed as I left, um, which was really great to see. I think transportation is one of the biggest issues facing of course, like every big city or even a small city right now and the way that how we get around is changing quite drastically and or is going to have to change quite drastically over the next few years. And I think the curb audience has always been really interested in what we've been discussing, you know, during this uh, conversation, which is the idea that you can get around in a different way and that you could give up your car. And what does that look like? And inspiring stories of how people are making it work, taking the bus or riding their bike or just being like a multimodal um, urban dweller, I guess, is kind of like the new the new way for how we can support our cities and also be a part of them. Transportation is always kind of going to be like the top issue because it also touches everything else. I mean, if you don't have a great transit system, you're not going to be able to support people getting to work and their housing. All these stories about the New York City subway and how it's so vital to the city, it proves true for any city. Like you have to maintain these connections and support them and make it accessible 
And that helps everybody's productivity and happiness, you know. So I think that that's kind of like the big issue for me to cover and and make sure that everybody understands the interconnectedness of how transit touches everything and, and makes a big difference in our lives. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention your article that was very quoted and popular and discussed uh, from last summer, uh, Mansplaining the City, which has the subheading, Why Are Men Driving the Conversation About the Future of Our Neighborhoods? And I think we could probably spend an entire other podcast just discussing this topic. But I did want to at least touch on that and ask you, you know, why do you think men are the primary drivers of these conversations? Strong Towns was even cited in your article. So yes. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, that's not to mean that uh, men don't have great opinions and aren't doing great work for the cities. You know, I always have a stack of books on my desk to read and, and think about. And the taller the stack got, the more I started looking at it, you know, from the side. And I was like, these are all books by men that are all have some kind of prescription for how the city is supposed to change or how what we've gotten wrong or what we're, we shouldn't be doing, whatever. And when I tried to find more female voices who had written books about the city, you know, there's like the famous one, there's Jane Jacobs, and everybody kind of reverts back to her. But I was like, let's get beyond the Jane Jacobs yeah. voice and try to find some other. And it was actually really, really difficult. And I started talking to more women about this. And they agreed that, you know, other women in the field were like, it's hard, it's hard for me to find these voices too. It's I've been, you know, looking for more books that have this perspective, or doesn't even need to be the female perspective, but just is written from, you know, a different, a different voice, which also includes, you know, marginalized communities, uh, people of color, like these are all voices that are underrepresented in the conversation about our cities. And so once I started poking around even more. I found there was some pretty good and very skewering criticism of a very particular type of voice, which is, you know, the one that corrects you quickly on Twitter when you post something and they tell you that what you know about Los Angeles is actually wrong and uh, <laughs> that they have a better idea for what is happening in Los Angeles. And that's kind of where the, the nod to the mansplaining term came from. But it's been very interesting. You know, I've discovered so many great female voices and not just female, but people who are not, who don't identify as men and particularly white men. I found a lot of really great people who are doing great work out there and in trying to make our cities better places. And I discovered, you know, I need to write the follow-up article now about, you know, how, how there actually are so many people out there doing great stuff. Cause of course I've got tons of people writing into me and showing me what they were doing. But I do think it's really interesting uh, what's happened. And again, I was kind of out on maternity leave, so I haven't had a chance to write about it yet. But with all the accusations of sexual harassment and uh, sexual assault and and a lot of these kind of patriarchy of power being, being toppled in the, over the last few months, a lot of that stuff is happening in public spaces too and on public transit and making women afraid to do things like ride transit and ride the bus, walk to the bus stop, making people feel unsafe to be out with their kids in public in places and in certain parts of the city and certain neighborhoods. So that's, to me, why we need to design our cities for women and children and to put the women in charge so they understand those challenges. You know, right now in LA, we've got they're all very nice people, but like we've got a male mayor and we've got only two of our city council people are women out of 16 or something like that. So 15 or 16. 
And that, to me, is a really big problem. And you could say there's great diversity and there's a lot of backgrounds represented, but I want to see the moms who are running this city. <laughs> They're actually running the city <laughs> just under the radar. I want to see them step up and be part of this, you know, leadership of the city. And you're seeing, you know, a bunch of female mayors were actually elected over the last few months in some, you know, rather large cities in the country. So maybe there's a big wave that's that's starting for the way we plan our cities. I appreciated the conversation that this article started. And I think that one of the responses that I heard from plenty of people, which was a perfectly fair response was like, what's the difference if a city is designed by a man or a woman? Like, we're all people, you know, we're, you know, trained in urban planning or engineering or whatever, architecture, like a building is just a building. It's not like a masculine building or feminine building. That exact point about like women feeling unsafe walking down the street is exactly why we we just need to have more perspectives because those are issues that people who don't have to worry about that wouldn't even think about and thus wouldn't design into their city. So, Right. Yeah. If you're a white and not, no offense to all these great and very strong voices that I rely on as experts all the time, but if you're a white male who walks to the bus stop, you will never understand the many different challenges that come with walking to that bus stop if you are not a white male. <laughs> so, and there's a whole other range of, you know, not just feeling unsafe, but, you know, other other issues that have to do with policing and uh, the way that, you know, certain cities have tried very hard to keep certain people out of certain neighborhoods. So, it's a very big challenge. And I, I do think you can you can try as hard as you can to become like an empathetic planner, or empathetic urban thinker. I think you would have a hard time understanding how you felt until you actually had to be that person walking down the street. I feel like your article ended on kind of a cliffhanger, um, which makes sense because there's no easy <laughs> answers to these questions. But what do you think can be done to get more female voices involved in getting to influence city building? Is it really just a matter of elevating the voices that are that are already there or empowering people to speak up in the first place? Well, what's great is that I work at an awesome and very inspiring place called Curbed. And we are kind of addressing that in another big package that we'll be um, rolling out this year on race and urbanism. Because I think the conversation, you know, about bringing uh, women into the, these planning decisions that that we're seeing, you know, you're seeing kind of some initiatives. There's one that I talk about in the article, women led cities, which is starting kind of a big campaign to exactly that bringing more women into positions of leadership in cities. I think the other big issue to crack now is and not that that's a problem is solved, but we're I think the gender disparity, for example, is very well recognized. Now we need to look at how we can include more people in the conversation in general, and mostly the people who already live in these places where somebody comes in and says, well, I have a great idea for how to change it. I know exactly what needs to be done without getting the accurate you know, sentiments of who lives there. So our race and urbanism package is really going to look at a lot of these efforts, you know, these more um, collaborative planning decisions and uh, how to elevate these voices, like you said, into the conversation. So I'll give you another cliffhanger <laughs> to maybe just keep reading what we're doing at Curbed and look for that. Um, it will be out in the spring. And I think we have some really interesting solutions and maybe ones that um, cities can steal from each other and, and try to try to replicate. 
Alyssa, thanks so much for being on the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, you can find Alyssa on Twitter at a walker in LA or read her work on Curbed. She's publishing all the time. So thank you so much, Alyssa Walker, for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me. And you guys are doing an excellent job. Thanks. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.